0: Tonight we're going to uh, continue our verse-by-verse study through the Bible, picking up in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 19. If you're in need of a Bible to follow along tonight in the back of the pew in front of you, you should find one. Once again, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, which is about four books into the Old Testament, and we'll pick up in chapter 19. While you're turning there, I actually want to turn elsewhere by way of introduction And I want to read to you out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to one of his um, spiritual children. A man who had grown up uh, in Paul's care in ministry and has now been sent out um, to help a church in Ephesus. And Paul here is reflecting on Timothy's childhood and the fact that his grandmother and his mother had raised him up in the scriptures. And so this is this is what he says about that in 2 Timothy He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what scriptures is Paul referring to there? If he's referring to Timothy's childhood and the scriptures that he was trained up in by his Jewish grandmother and his Jewish mother, it's what we would call the Old Testament. Right. Although we see Second Timothy as scripture, when Timothy sits down to read it, he didn't have it as a child. He didn't have the book of Acts or the gospels. Here Paul is referring to the Old Testament and it's in that context that he makes this statement in verse 16 of chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so Paul makes one of the clearest statements on what the scriptures are and what they're for, that they're divinely inspired, the word he uses there in the Greek, theopneustos, theo being God and pneuma being air, that they're breathed out by God. Peter says something similar, speaking of the same Old Testament scriptures, when he says, no Old Testament prophesied or interpreted based on his own perspective, but he prophesied as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. The point I'm trying to make is that um, this high view of Scripture and its profitableness for us doesn't merely apply to the words of Jesus or even the words of Jesus and his apostles. It applies to the whole entirety of the Scriptures, including the Old Testament, Sometimes that needs to be kept in mind uh, when we turn to chapters like we'll look at, look at in Deuteronomy because there are difficult things to understand in these chapters. There are things in these chapters that are easily misunderstood and often misconstrued. And so one of the ways some Christians have tried to deal with that is distancing themselves from this book and going, well, at, at worst, that's the God of the Old Testament. Uh, but even in better versions, that's the Old Testament, that's, uh, you know, um, there's some sort of uh, lack of clarity in God's plan, or this is just what Israel misunderstood about God, or there's a thousand wrong ways to handle this, and so it's important uh, to keep in mind how Paul views these books. In fact, he quotes from not only the Old Testament, but the book of Deuteronomy extensively, and so did Jesus. And so, with that in mind, we have our work cut out for us tonight as we deal with some, um, like I said, difficult to under, understand passages and ones that are often cited as evidence um, of the horrors um, of the Old Testament. Um, but I think if we give them the space in their original context, if we take the time to really think at what they're saying, and not the implications that we're bringing into the text, I actually think we find in this um, an incredibly profound valuing of life that outstrips anything of its time and honestly sometimes puts our own nation's thinking to shame. So let's pick up in chapter 19, verse 1. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose lands the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them, and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourself in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, we're going to talk about the cities of refuge again. They've come up multiple occasions. In fact, we saw in the book of Numbers, three of them have already been named. Three on the other side of the Jordan River for the two and a half tribes who didn't enter into the traditional promised land. And even back in the book of Numbers, we're told there will come an occasion where you're in the land and you'll set up three more cities. What I want to draw your attention to in these (coughs) first few verses is the presence of God in this description. Listen to it again and notice the references. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourself in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Do you hear the emphasis there? There's a constant reminder that this land is God's gift, that the war they're about to fight will be God's victory. Um, It's helpful for us to notice that right here, and realize that the legislation that follows is really part of a larger sermon that Moses is giving. And his intent is not just to extrapolate the law or lay out like a modern legal code where every loophole is closed and everything is codexed. Instead, he's exhorting them to keep the covenant and obey God because God is giving them this land. And there's this triangle in the book of Deuteronomy, between God, the land, and the people. And the book emphasizes keeping those things in balance. And if you read it that way, you'll see it over and over again. And so even here, before we talk about cities of refuge, we have to, uh, we have to recognize why they're needed. They're needed because Israel has a covenant with the living God, who's given them this land to occupy if they keep the covenant. And so the cities of refuge are built into that idea. Look at verse 3. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord God gives you as a possession, <coughs> possession so that any <coughs> manslayer can f- flee to them. Now that word there, manslayer, is important because it's distinguishing there the difference between murder and manslaughter. A, d- a difference that we still hold in our own legal uh legal capacity. The idea here is not that if somebody uh, commits a murder, they can literally get away with it if they can just escape to a sanctuary city, but for those where there's an accidental death, an unintended death, and that includes even when uh, there's a fight and the fight escalates and somebody gets killed. What, what they mean here um, by not manslaughter, what they would mean by murder. Uh, is anything that was plotted, anything that was in cold blood, anything um, that was intentional. Somebody woke up in the morning and said, today I'm going to kill so-and-so. Okay? Now, <clears throat> here this provision is made for the manslayer, and one of the things we need to recognize here, once again, is, is the motivation here. Look at what it says in verse 4. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, and then it gives us an example for us, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the ax to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. Now, <coughs> the word there for strikes, interestingly enough, has nothing to do with impact. The word there is actually fines. okay? It, it implies the accidental nature of this. It's as if the axe just stumbled into the neighbor, right? That's what the word find means here. But, but here's the idea. You're out and you're using your axe. Your axe breaks. The blade goes flying and you accidentally kill your neighbor. This person, it says, <coughs> he may flee to one of the cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him. Now, notice this. This is not... Um, This is not a justification of vengeance killing. In fact, it's making a way so that that doesn't happen. But what it recognizes is in that little phrase, "in hot blood." Right? If somebody hears that because of you their brother is dead and they're raging and they're like, "Okay, I'm going to get him," they set up this process so that there is a government recognized uh, safety program, if you will, to to put restraint or restraint on vengeance killing to stop the shedding of blood. So, notice what he says in verse 6, lest the avenger of blood and hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. Okay? So, The logic here is when you get into the land, measure it equally into three portions and centrally in each portion put one of these cities of refuge so that the man can get to one, so that the accidental killer can get to one and he doesn't tire on the road so that things don't go sideways. Now, I did want to mention that phrase there, avenger of blood. That first word there for avenger is usually translated kinsman redeemer. Okay. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, one of the plot points that turns the whole story is that Boaz is in a place to redeem the land that belonged to Ruth's husband and take Ruth as a wife because he is, as the law requires, a kinsman redeemer, a close, uh, a close brother in the family. This is the same word, but this is a goel, a kinsman redeemer of blood, okay? Now, the the other idea that's kind of not stated here but is clearly implied by the text is that this is an appointed member of the family who is seeking justice, okay? So not every circumstance are they going to know it was an accident. Take it back to the story in the woods, right? It's a good story, but the only witness is the one who killed him. And so the kinsmen... Uh, of blood, or the uh, re- the kinsman redeemer of blood, or the avenger of blood, he is the one who's appointed by the family, a close member of the deceased, to pursue justice. Okay, that's that's what this is talking about here. Um, but he says these cities are to be close, um, so that they can be of use. Verse seven. Therefore, I command you: you shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give your fathers, provided you're careful to keep all these commandments which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and by walking ever in his ways, then you shall add three other cities to these, okay? So the initial conquest of the land, they were to set up three, and if they expanded all the way into the borders promised to Abraham, then they needed another three, okay? Okay? In fact, that's one of the things we see in the book of Deuteronomy. We see both an adaptation to what was given in Exodus, because in Exodus, they're in the wilderness. They're living in one giant mass around the tabernacle. Everybody can reach the tabernacle. Here, they're moving into an entire national territory, and so we see the law expanded to meet their new circumstances. And here, we see that it's even implied that it should expand beyond that as circumstances continue to change. But why does Moses tell them? Not merely because he foresees that or thinks that they won't figure that out, but because he wants to emphasize again the relationship between their success in the land and the keeping of the covenant. And so he just drops that in there. If you expand to the territory that God promised Abraham because you've been keeping the covenant, right? It's just another preaching point for him. And so he says, another three, um, verse 10, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Now, here's what it doesn't say about the city of refuge in this passage, and it does in other places. The one who flees stays in the city of refuge until the death of the current high priest. And it explains in the book of Exodus that the reason is that the death of the high priest atones for this accidental death. And that's something significant to see in the scripture. Um, Just because the death is unintended doesn't mean that it's not serious, right? Even accidental death comes at great cost to the family, great cost to the victim and God sees those deaths as being something that need to be atoned for. We'll see this come up later in our passage tonight. Here's the point. This way involving cities of refuge is both a way to um, stay vengeance killing and protect the innocent and a way to recognize the sanctity of that original life that was taken. Deuteronomy and the Old Testament as a whole has a very high view of life, and it begins in Genesis chapter 9, where it says, if anyone takes a man's life, his, man sh- or his life shall be taken because man was made in the image of God, okay? All human life is innately valuable because we are made to reflect God's image, and so any death, be it an accidental manslaughter or a murder, has a problem in the way that it's put throughout Deuteronomy. Remember the triangle? So we have God, we have Israel, and we have the land. It pollutes the land, okay? And so the cities of refuge is a way to deal with that. Now, there's an important contrast made here, verse 11, but if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into the one of these cities, the elders of the city shall send send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that they may be well with you. Do you see how both of them emphasize taking care of the innocent? One, the innocent party that accidentally killed somebody, and the second, the innocent party that was killed intentionally. But the emphasis here is um, that uh, (coughs) probably contrasted with our semi-modern view of sanctuary. Right? Every once in a while you'll see in films where somebody no matter what their past, no matter what's going on, enters into a church and cries for sanctuary. And it's this like entire complete protection from the law. That's laid out clearly not to be the case for Israel. Okay. They are to take the dignity of life so seriously that the value of a life taken intentionally has to be maintained. Justice must be done. And that the value of a life that accidentally killed someone must be protected okay there's a very high view of human dignity here and life as well now starting with the cities of refuge and continuing on it seems if you've been following along with the outline that i suggested that some commentators believe in that you take the 10 commandments or the 10 words from earlier in deuteronomy and then and then basically see Moses is preaching through these. Um, we have moved on to the next one here, which is you shall not kill, right? The um, fifth commandment. But we'll notice as we move through here, not everything fits. I will suggest some ways to make it fit, but I'm really reluctant to cram anything into some man-made system. But it does seem like that's setting the agenda, even if he deals with some other things along the way. But notice the next one, verse 14. Verse 14 you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in, an, uh, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, at first glance, that has nothing to do with the dignity of life. But one of the things you need to keep in mind is from the Jewish perspective, there's a continuity between ancestors and descendants. In fact, this idea is still maintained. And so, uh, one of the organizations that formed in memory of the Holocaust was a tree planting organization. Uh, and their, their planting of trees isn't just to equal those who died in the Holocaust, but all of the descendants that were cut off and will never be because of that death in the Holocaust. Okay? We don't tend to think in that way in modern terms. We're very individualistic. Um, But when it mentions the inheritance here, it's recognizing this continuity. And remember how it plays out in Israel. Their land that they were given was to be portioned out, and that land was not to change hands. Even if a person um, got into such deep debt, he had to sell his land to get his way out of debt. That was only temporary, and every 50 years, the land was to be readjusted and restored, okay? No, no rich person was going to be buying up all the land in Israel and making everybody renters. That wasn't going to happen. And so here, there is a sense that ties to the dignity of life because it's recognizing here that in moving the landmark, you're taking not just their inheritance, but their destiny, their, their life as it flows through kids, uh, through their kids. And the idea here is, if it's, if it's not clear... Somebody sneaks out in the middle of the night and just moves the property line just a little bit and maybe a little bit more into the next year and so on and so forth. Um, but here, that's to, be, um, that's to be maintained. In fact, the Proverbs uh, make many mentions of the horror of moving the landmarks. Okay, so that one's a little bit harder to fit in this thou shalt not murder, but the next one is not. Notice verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Okay, So here we have a look at the justice system and the recognition is that there needs to be at least two witnesses to validate testimony before it leads to consequence and punishment. It continues... Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office um, those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay, and so the recognition here is somebody who intentionally gives false testimony to bring about evil on their neighbor, okay? If we put it in terms of of capital punishment, we understand how serious this can be. Imagine there's a man who says, hey, I know you say that was an accident in the woods, but I was watching and I saw you take that man's life. What if there's only one witness is the question that's being asked here. And it says it's to be brought, uh, and notice here, to the highest authorities. It goes straight to the high court of Israel at the center in Jerusalem, not just the elders of a local town. This is escalated. And they're to discern what's really happened. And if they discover... um, they discover that this man has perjured himself, that he is a false witness, then he bears the full weight of the consequences he was trying to bring about on his neighbor. And so it says in verse 20, uh, verse 20 and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. And so they're to do this so that it doesn't become popular to use the court system falsely, Right? And so there's a balance in consequences. Now notice what it says in verse 21. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now this is usually referred to as the lex Tolonis, or shorthand, an eye for an eye, right? It's referred to three times across the law, Exodus, Leviticus, and here. And oftentimes it's misunderstood as being um, a provision that encourages vengeance, okay? So for example, I believe it's Gandhi who famously said, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Here's where we need to keep in mind the context, okay? What are we talking about here? Are we talking about personal, you know, I killed your dog, so you're gonna kill my cat? No, we're talking about court sentencing. And the rule is that the court sentencing is to be consistent and fair, Okay. It's to be consistent with what is deserved, and so uh, it's worth noting that most of the time the, the um, Jewish rabbis interpreted this: an eye, a tooth, a hand—all of that st- stuff, except for human life, was given a monetary value. Okay. In fact, we see that uh, we see that with a pregnant woman who uh, who is brought to miscarriage because of a because of abuse. Um, There there are places in the law where we actually see this played out, but the one that is maintained is a life for a life. Like I said, that goes back to Genesis chapter 9. But it is a limitation, just as much as it's a call for justice. It's not, you took my eye, I'm going to take two of yours. It's a limitation on this, and it's also placing it firmly in the hands of the community and what we would call government and not in personal hands. Remember how I told you earlier, sometimes we try and deal with the things that we find hard in Deuteronomy or the Old Testament um, by, by explaining them away. A popular way involves this verse right here, because let's be honest, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this. This is what he says. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you if your eni- or, uh, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And so the, the logic goes, see, here Jesus overturns the law as being uh, not good enough, sets it aside and says, no, how it should really be. What Jesus is actually doing there is recognizing the fact that some people have taken the lex telonis and made it personal, Right? And so now they're using it as a justification for vigilantism, for personal vengeance. Every time Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, he's not talking about you have heard it read. He's talking about how the law was handled in his day and age, how it was interpreted and utilized in his day and age. He's not critiquing the Old Testament because, gosh, move a chapter forward. It's not even a chapter, actually. It's both in chapter 5. So you heard that it was said, but I say to you is all through the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. But before he starts that section, do you know what he says in in his introduction? He says the word of God will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Not one jot, not even one tittle. Don't say that I've come to throw out the word of God. I've come to fulfill it. It's very difficult, very difficult to not see that significant in the next paragraph in his same sermon, okay? What Jesus is actually saying is you're tearing apart the law by misconstruing it. And so he explains the right understanding of the law um, and not the way it was applied in his day. And so when we keep those things in mind and we come back here and recognize this as being a governmental sentencing as well as a limitation, um, it probably will remove some of the great concerns that are expressed. Now, I don't think it's going to get around the fact that we have a tendency towards um, eschewing, I think that's the word I want, punishment. Distancing ourselves from it and just saying that's not really what it is. We want restorative not consequential punishment. In fact, sometimes it's even criticized and saying, well, well, one reason people give for, for punishment, like the death penalty, for example, is that it's preventative. And there's arguments today where they say, well, is it really preventative? Is there anyone who stops before they commit a murder and they go, well, I could get the chair for this? And they question that. But it is in the logic of the text, is it not? Be fair and consistent and bring about justice. Why? So that people will hear and fear. Okay? So there is that element here in the scriptures. But one of the reasons I think that we downplay these, the need for punishment today is not because we have a high view of human life, because we care about the criminal. Sometimes it's because we we don't care enough about those who are harmed by criminals. It's really hard to maintain that balance. Let's continue on to chapter 20. What we have for most of 20 involves warfare. And this is another place that makes people uncomfortable. It's another place where we point to Jesus and we go, look, Jesus was a uh, a pacifist, some people say, or at least he was into non-retaliation, which is true. And they go back to the Old Testament where there's things like war and they say all war is unjust for Christians uh, and, uh, and I actually think some of those arguments can be very convincing. Non-retaliation as a personal practice is irremovable from the gospel of Christ, right? Like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth, okay? But widening that out and saying, therefore, there's no such thing as a just war is still a hard case and one that is de- debated by solid... Um, Bible-believing interpreters who give pretty good reasons for their understanding, but once again, I think as we read through this chapter, we're going to find significant details that get lost, off, uh, left off the table. Because our question is: Is Deuteronomy right or wrong for talking about war, for prescribing a way to wage war? When what we actually will find in here is is significant limitations that are restraining the abuses of war, okay? Notice verse one. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so the first thing here is an exhortation that as they enter into the land and they notice that they're outnumbered and outgunned. That's why there's a reference to horses and chariots, okay? Um, that they're not to be afraid but I also want you to notice here the and we find this restraint in other places that that puts a limitation on for example building your arsenal okay Israel was not to maintain chariots it didn't even have a standing army whenever the army was needed it was a volunteer force that was summoned and as we'll see it was trimmed back very intentionally why because it's not a numbers game Okay. But that uh, that stops Israel from being a um, alien, invade, alien invading, empire building military power. But notice is it at verse, verse 2, when you draw near to battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. This is a point that God makes not just here but consistently. Consider Gideon. Okay, here's Gideon. He's the least of his family and the least of his tribe. And he's what we would properly call a coward. Okay, even when God gives him his, uh, his practice round, he says, hey, before I can use you as a general to deal with the enemies of Israel, you got to deal with your dad and his idol worship. Right in his house, in Gideon's own house, under his father's rule, there's a big statue of Baal. And God says, you got to pull it down. What does Gideon do? He waits till nightfall, sneaks into his own living room and knocks it over and runs away. Okay. He's not a courageous guy. So when it comes time for battle and he assembles this army, the first thing God says is, Gideon, you have too many troops. And he walks them through all these steps and he weans the army down to a ridiculously small size. And this is the logic it gives in the book of Judges. Because if you achieve the victory with this many men, you will think it's your victory. Okay. So the emphasis here is that God is the one that will fight for Israel. That's not the same thing as saying Israel is the one who fights for God, which is often the concern we have with ideas of jihad or holy war, or even that religion drives um, all sorts of awful wickedness and war. Okay. There, there are limitations and, and things here theologically that help us um, recognize that that's not a right understanding of this text. We'll see more as we go on. Verse 5, then the officers shall speak to the people saying, is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. So here, these are the exceptions, the people who can go home. The first one is I've built a house and I haven't even moved in yet. The second one is in verse 6. If there's any man who planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit, let him go back to his house lest he die in the battle and another man enjoys his fruit. When you plant a vineyard, you don't get a vintage. You don't get grapes until about three years in. Okay? So the idea here is that they've started the process, but he's never even gotten to taste the fruit of his labor. Then notice the last one. Verse 7, if there's any man who is betrothed to a wife that's engaged and has not taken her as a wife, meaning getting married, let him go back to his house lest he die in a battle and another man take her. Now this is kind of an odd exception list, right? These were not viable reasons to get out of the American draft, were they? What's the idea here? The idea that's emphasized over and over is the emphasis of enjoyment. The reason envisioned that they would be waging war is for the protection of their land. But the protection of their land is only as good as the enjoyment of their land. That's its purpose. And so effectively it says here, wouldn't it be sad if you didn't get to enjoy the land that you're defending? That's kind of the the idea here. Then it adds another one to the list. Verse 8 And then the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back. Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. So anyone who's not courageous enough to fight, let him go. Now, think of what this means broadly. It means the narrowing of the size of the army. What makes this possible, once again, is that it's God who fights for them. Now, there is a little piece of logical advice here for the fearful, which is just imagine what it's like to be on the front lines and see the people who are supposed to be there with you, protecting you, watching your back run away. Okay? Even the courageous have a choice to make at that point. And there's a struggle there. The idea is if you melt on the front lines, what if it spreads to the others? There is a philosophy here but nonetheless, underlying it is this deeper root of the fact that God doesn't need to hit the threshold of enough soldiers that, in some sense, this war that it's talking about is not a war of attrition. Okay? Verse 9, when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then the commander shall be appointed at the head of the people. Once again, Israel doesn't have a standing army, so any time the volunteers are gathered... These ones are excused, and then the officers appoint generals, okay? Verse 10, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it, okay? Now, we read that at first, and we go, oh, wait a minute. It's only a few chapters ago that we read that they were to be on no positive terms with the Canaanites. We'll get there. At the end of this paragraph, it's going to say, this is the uh, legislation for those who are far from you, okay? And so it separates here the Canaanites in the promised land and the possibility of future war, okay? Now, verse 11, so offer terms of peace to it, and if it responds to you peaceably and opens up to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it, and when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. Uh, but the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you'll enjoy the, splendor of your, uh, the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Now let's just deal with something really quickly. It doesn't explain the reason for this potential warfare. As I said, we're going to see that he's not talking about the Canaanites. He's not talking about the land, uh, but distant peoples. But the reason is not explained. I'm not going to go beyond that. It's just not stated here. But I do want you to notice that there is two restraints put on this war. And the first is, it has to begin with an offer of peace. It has to begin there. The city is given the choice to accept or reject an offer of peace, and if they take it, no one is to be harmed, and they just become the servants of Israel. If you want to know what this looks like in practice, you can look at the Gibeonites in the book of Joshua, who get this exact deal, but they're not supposed to, because they're residents of the land. So what the Gibeonites do is they come, and they're wearing super old clothes, and they bring already stale bread, and their shoes have holes in it, and they go, we've come from really far away. We've heard of your great power. We just want to have a peace treaty with you. We'll become your servants. And then, they come over the next hill, and here's the city of Gibeah. And they're like, oh, we shouldn't have made that promise, which, by the way, God requires them to keep. In fact, the next thing that happens is the Gibeonites get attacked by their neighbors, because they've, you know, broken this unified group of people, and Israel has to protect them. Okay. Um, so that's the first limitation. And the second one is the only ones who are to die are the men of war. They can't just slaughter the city. Okay. Now obviously that's different than the war we've been reading about with the Canaanites where the exact opposite is said, that they're not to leave anyone alive. And the reason is very simple. It's not easy to accept, but it's very simple. What God is doing in Canaan is a unique act of God's judgment of which Israel is only the tool. In fact, all the way back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 15, God says, 400 years from now, I'm going to bring your people out of a foreign land where they're slaves and bring them into the land. And they will conquer the people that are here. And then it says this, for their punishment is not yet full. God says, I'm not doing this for 400 years because there's still time for them to turn around. There's still time for repentance. Consider Nineveh, right? Here's Jonah, the self-righteous, angry prophet, and he doesn't even want to do his job. Why? Because he knows God's heart, Jonah chapter 4 says. I knew that you were compassionate, slow to anger, and that if somebody repented, you would turn around. That's why I didn't even want to warn Nineveh because I wanted them to get what's coming. We have to watch out for thinking that we have more compassionate hearts than God does. We have to read this in the context. And so the second thing I want to point out is we find here that this, I don't love the word holy war, but that this particular war on the land of Canaanites is unique. Not every one of Israel's enemies falls subject to them. Once again, God says, when we come into the land, I will fight for you, not you will fight for me. I think that's tremendously important, okay? To notice that these distinctions are laid out right in the text. Okay. So verse 15, thus you shall do with all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, but in the cities of the people that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote to them complete to complete destruction. That phrase there for complete destruction is a technical term. Okay? It's one that's used specifically of God's judgment. In fact, do you know the Greek word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, that we call the Septuagint uses for this word? It's anathema. It's the one that we find in the New Testament. Let him be accursed, it says in the book of Galatians. Let him be anathema, okay? It's specifically speaking here of devoted to God's judgment, okay? And so they're to do this, and then it lays out the tribes that he's referring to, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. This metaphor may not be helpful to you, but effectively he sees the culture of these people to be contagious, okay? And like I said, this is not a helpful metaphor because what I'm about to say is not the same thing, but it helped me to kind of wrap my head around this. At the end of Old Yeller, when Old Yeller is put down, it's a terrible thing. But it's also a good thing. The logic is similar here. It's a recognition that this culture is not only corrupt and destructive, but contagious. And if they let it stand, it will spread. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happens, not because of the compassion or the pity of the Israelites, but because of their unbelief. They look at some of these battles and they go, I don't think we can take it. And so they compromise. And then that's the beginning of the book of Judges, which is a total mess. Okay. Verse 19 listen to this one. I think this is fascinating. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Now, the words of that last sentence are so minimal. There's only a few of them. We're kind of filling in the blanks there. Most likely, it's not saying trees aren't human. What it's saying is, aren't the trees good for humans? In other words, take, take for example the fact that Israel is going to step into the land of Canaan and wage war. They're going to besiege cities. Think of Jericho, right? This walled city, they walk around it. Normal siege tactics generally require a lot of wood battering uh, rams, uh, ladders, siege things. In fact, sometimes armies would come in and they would destroy all the land outside the city just to destroy the morale. You have nothing to live for anyways. You might as well surrender. We've burned it all to the ground. Israel's not to be that way, okay? Now, in the promised land, that makes absolutely sense because whose orchards are they destroying if they cut it down? But notice here, it's not limited to the land of Canaan. If you besiege a city... Leave the trees standing. Okay. Look at verse 20. Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it fails. One of the things we see throughout our study tonight is that God wants Israel to think long term. And that seems to be part of the logic here. That's why this distinction is made between these trees and trees for food. Okay. In other words, Israel's approach to warfare is not to be a scorched earth approach. There is clearly an environmental conscientiousness here that definitely modern warfare often fails in. Okay. Think of the deforestization of Vietnam that entire area was devastated for the sake of that war. And one of the most horrible things about that is not that that screwed up our occupancy of Vietnam, but the people we were supposedly defending. Right? Do you see the illogicalness of that? That's the significance of what's being said here uh, is is that this approach that we're going to, you know, um, bring about total annihilation, destruction, sow the land with salt, whatever it is, For Israel, that's not to be a part of the conversation. So we can see here that this legislation given on how they wage war once again fits under the Sixth Commandment. has to do with killing. Chapter 21 also continues, and notice this in verse 1. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it's not known who killed him. Okay. Now, we read that opening line and it sounds like the first scene of CSI. Right? What we expect next is a case needs to be opened, a detective needs to be on the scene, bring in forensics. right? That's not actually where the concern is. The concern here is not with solving the crime, it's with the community's responsibility for this dead person. Notice, verse 3 the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man. Okay, so the first thing they do is they measure measure the distance from the body to the closest towns and cities. And the one that's closest, it's on their elders to do what's next. But effectively, what we're talking about is jurisdiction. I couldn't remember the name of it, but I remember a television show that came out a few years ago, and the premise was that a body was found on a bridge. It might even have been called the bridge. The bridge. Between two communities. In fact, I think it was on the border of the US and Mexico, so between two foreign communities. The idea is the same here. Before anything else is done, where was the body nearest? And then those elders do this the elders of the city that's nearest to the slain take a heifer that's never been worked and has not been pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, (coughs) which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. It's really not what we're expecting. But keep reading verse 5. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him, and bless him in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault Shall be settled. That's just reminding us of their jurisdiction, that they're involved in serious court cases. Verse 6, all the elders of the city that's nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley and shall testify our hands did not shed this blood nor did our eyes see it shed. Okay, so first they kill this innocent animal. Notice that they don't do it by bleeding the animal out. This is not a sacrifice. It's different than when you take a heifer to the temple or the tabernacle to offer it. Okay, here, they break its neck, so it's fully intact but dead, and then they take water from the stream that was required a few verses ago, and they wash their hands above the heifer, and then they speak and they say, we are innocent of this blood. We neither performed this killing nor did we see it. What I want you to notice here is the communal responsibility for the individuals in their community, okay? The recognition, once again, is that all killing pollutes the land. And so something needs to be done. Now, this is not a sacrifice. It's going to use the word atonement in a second. In fact, verse 8, accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel. But this is the only place in the entire Old Testament, as far as I know, where atonement is used with God as the subject and not us. Usually in Leviticus, and the priest shall make atonement for you. But the word here, the covering is, except this covering, O Lord, what you should be thinking of is Cain and Abel. Right? Cain lures his younger brother Abel out into the fields and he kills him there and he buries it and he hides it. And God comes and he says, why is it that I hear your brother's blood, what, crying out to me from the ground, okay? The recognition here is one of responsibility, and this is a symbolic act so that all involved understand the seriousness of what's gone down, a life for a life, right? We've been talking about that, Um but it's symbolic. It's not magical. It's not sympathetic. It's not accomplishing anything. What it's doing is giving them an opportunity uh, to carry the weight of this responsibility and uh, express their innocence. But once again, notice the underlying moral logic. The deaths that happen in our community, we have responsibility there. Whether this man was murdered or accidentally killed, it's not stated. It doesn't matter. There's a communal responsibility. Now, consider consider the level in the modern world, in our own city, and how easy it is to see that as just just another corpse. The dignity of life demands community responsibility. That's why safety standards matter. That's why when we let, <coughs> you know, gangs rage and gang wars rage, we can't just wash our hands like Israel does and say, we didn't see this, we didn't do it. No, we have, we have a responsibility in these things. And so verse 8, accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel who you've redeemed and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel so that their blood guilt to be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. One of the ways that the Bible deals with sin is it speaks of it like pollution. That's why it uses this word purge here. I know that probably makes you think of vomiting, but what it actually means is to wash. Okay? Purging comes from this idea of washing. And so, <coughs> so here, there's this growing dirtying of the nation through when these things aren't dealt with. There's a pollution. All right. Let's, uh, well, one last thing. just trying to remember what it is oh right we cannot read about this community washing their hands over the heifer and not think of Pilate. how different those circumstances where here Pilate finds no nothing deserving of death and then tries to excuse himself from the sentence he's about to hand down by washing his hands of it All I want to say is that we are so capable of trying to walk in the significant realities and be completely dishonest. We're so capable of saying, this is not my fault when it clearly is. One of the things that I love about this practice, even though it's symbolic, even though I can't explain every aspect of it, is it's a constant requirement to consider the responsibility we have for those around us. We'll see more on that in just a second. But verse 10, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her to your home, to your house. Okay. Now what I want you to notice once again, that makes us uncomfortable. We're talking about women who are prisoners of war being taken as wives but I want you to notice where the emphasis is put. It's on protecting the rights and the dignity of this woman. Okay. And so notice what it says in verse 12. When you bring her home to your house, she'll shave her head and pare her nails. She'll take off the clothes in which she was captured and she'll remain in your house and lament her father and her mother for a full month. She's given the room to lament, to mourn. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that her mother and father are dead but if she's been brought into Israel, her relationship with them is broken. And so she's given room to that. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is that there is no room in Israel's law code for rape in the context of war. Okay? Rape, pillage, and plunder is not on the table. And so even here, if she's brought into the house, it's not tomorrow, the wedding. It's 30 days from now, so she's given room to mourn her family And then notice how it continues here. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. Now, it may be here that when it says, um, if you have no delight in her, it's actually talking about during this 30-day period. If you take this woman to be your wife and then you decide against it, You can't go, well, now you're just going to be my slave. And you can't go, well, you still have to be my captive. She can go wherever she wants. She wants to go back to her nation. She's allowed to go. More likely, though, as much as I wish that were the case, it's probably talking about divorce in general. If it comes to the point where you divorce this woman, but once again, notice that it's her rights that are protected. Here's one of the things that's really interesting about the Old Testament. And you're just going to have to study for yourself to see that this is the case, but I can say it with full confidence. The Old Testament doesn't see divorce as being the privilege of men, but something that men do to women. It's something that God's constantly restraining, legislating, criticizing, not something that he goes, well, since you're a man, you can divorce your wife. That's not ever there. Even when divorce is dealt with in Deuteronomy 24, this is how it's phrased. If a man takes his wife, and if he hates her, and if he gives her a certificate of divorce, and then if he takes another woman as a wife and then divorces her, it is an abomination to take back his first wife. Does that sound like some sort of legislation to make divorce possible? No. The concern there is that for a man to throw away a woman and then after a while take her back again when he's had another wife, is not okay. It's an abomination. It's a restraint. We don't have time, but if you turn to Malachi and look at what he says when he says God hates divorce, that's not an that's not unengendered statement. He's criticizing the men. He says, I hear your ex-wives weeping in their prayers, and I will hold you accountable. But nonetheless, the emphasis here is not if you take a foreign wife as a prisoner of war, you can divorce her whenever you want. It's if you're going to divorce her, she's not a slave. She's not your property. She's free to go where she, where she wills. Verse 15, if a man has two wives. Now, I would love to just go the easy way and point out here that it doesn't say if a man takes a second wife and just go, the idea here is that some men in Israel proper, or maybe even some converts, are already polygamous, and say the, that the Old Testament doesn't allow for polygamy. I'll tell you what just, just removes that possibility for me. It's this woman, Hannah, in the book of Samuel. This woman whose husband uh, has taken two wives, and she can't get pregnant, and so this other wife is constantly criticizing her and holding that over her head, and she's praying that God would give her a child, right? And that becomes Samuel. It's just there. You know, that's not the time of the patriarchs before the law. It's Israel. You know? Um, but, But here's what I would say, and I think I'm accurate to say it. There's an occasion where Jesus is talking with the Pharisees about marriage and divorce. And so the question that they've asked is, is it lawful to divorce a woman for any reason? And they're dealing with, a, uh, in their day, a contemporary debate between two major rabbis. Okay? One who said the only reason when it says he finds displeasure in her in Deuteronomy 24, the only reason is some sort of sexual sin. The other camp said if she burns your toast, kick her out. That's how broad the gap was. So most likely they're coming to Jesus and saying, choose a side. Which one's right? And Jesus goes more rigid than both of them. And he says, divorce for any reason except adultery just leads to adultery. He says, there's a permanence to marriage. And they go, wait a minute. Why did Moses permit us to divorce our wives? And he says, he did that because of your hardness of hearts, but in the beginning it was not so. With full confidence, I can tell you tonight about this polygamy. It's legislated because it's there, it's happening, but in the beginning it was not so. That's how Jesus would respond to this. That's what he would point to. He'd say, if you want to understand what marriage is to be, you have to go back to the book of Genesis But once again here, I want you to recognize that this passage doesn't say, go ahead and take two wives. That's just the circumstance. If a man has two wives, and then the focus here is on protecting the rights of the wife and her children. Verse 15, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, And both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference of the son of the unloved who is firstborn. So this isn't just true of Israel, but Israel's inheritance practices. Like the ancient world, the larger portion, a double portion, would go to the firstborn son. He would take over as kind of the patriarch of the family. And so he got a double portion of the inheritance. Uh, and, then, and then the rest of it would be equalized and even split depending on how many sons there were. The premise here is that a man's taken two wives. One he's really fond of, even though uh, she bears a son a little bit later than the first one. He can't play favorites. He can't privilege his son. Now, you, you really can't read this without thinking of Isaac and Jacob and the, the mess that goes on there. But the real idea here is is that the firstborn son of this man, whichever wife he came from, has the rights that his position deserves. It's a protection of those rights. Verse 17, he shall acknowledge the firstborn son of the unloved by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The rights of the firstborn is his. Now, we move on to another difficult passage, but I want you to see it in context, okay? First, there's a protection of the rights of the child. Parents owe things to children, and Deuteronomy elevates that and says, don't forget this. What comes next has to do with the rights of the parents, but once again, it's easy to just throw it out and not think it through and excuse it as being um, terrible, but when we pay attention Uh, there's some details to keep in mind. Verse 18, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city and the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son, uh, this our son is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now we're still generally talking about the sixth commandment, right? This is dealing with death, specifically the death penalty, but it's also a clear reference to the fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. That's what makes this such a serious sin. But here's some clarifications that have to be stated. First off, it's not talking about a six-year-old. Okay? The word here for son and his rebellious behavior is talking about somebody who's entered into adulthood. Okay? The second thing I want you to notice is that this is not carried out by the parents. This is not, I brought you into the world and I can take you out of it this concern is brought before the community. It's brought before the courts and it's handled there, okay? By implication, if this is not, uh, if, if the son's behavior is not deserving of death, that's why it's brought before the community so that they can determine, okay? Third thing we need to keep in mind is that we are not a culture that really understands the value or the significance of honor your father and mother. We just aren't. And yet it's so serious to God that it makes, it makes it into the Big Ten. But more importantly here, you have to once again recognize the continuity. Okay? This rebellious and wayward son is a threat to the community, and he's a threat to the passing on of inheritance. Okay? The idea here is basically that this guy is going to waste all that a family has deserved, all that's available and invested, right? It's still very serious. There's no removing that. The last thing I want to point out to you, and this is just something that I've been chewing on as I've been thinking about this passage. Notice who's missing in verse 21. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Now, could that include the son's father? It could, But every other place where family is involved in the death penalty, it significantly says that they throw the first stone, okay? Why? Because they're the ones bringing the accusation here, okay? And so earlier we talked about um, a family member who becomes a heretic, who walks away from God and just quietly says, hey, don't tell anybody, but I've got this bail business on the side and it's really great, right? Right? It says, no, you need to bring that to the attention of the courts. But when you do, you throw the first stone and everybody follows. But here the parents seem to be missing. I don't think you can read this as if the parents are so excited that this is happening. Finally, we get rid of our awful son. I think only only someone who doesn't have children, and I don't care if they're good children or wayward children, could think that way. It seems to me that they're doing their responsibility for the community at great pain to themselves and they're removed from performing the punishment because they're already enduring the pain their son has brought on their life. There is nothing flippant about this passage. What have we been reading about the dignity of human life? When we put it back in its context, it doesn't make it more comfortable but I think it does remove some of the foolish ways that this passage is sometimes criticized. Now, here's something profound. This here is talking about the rebellious son being put to death by the community. But consider Jesus. Here, Jesus is put to death by this self same community, and he's the innocent and obedient son. That is more unjust than this. That should be more impacting to you than this. And once again I will say that one of the reasons why the Old Testament law bothers us is because we really do not understand the holiness of God or the sinfulness of us. Verse 22 And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death And he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. To be clear here, notice the order. He's put to death. How? Israel always stones people with stones. And then he's hung on a tree. Okay, so the idea here is of public display. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You will not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. What we're talking about here is the rights of those who are on death row. Even though they're deserving of capital punishment, a common practice in that day was to leave the corpses of the worst criminals out to be eaten by the birds, but not in Israel. Okay? That wasn't to be allowed. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, so by the end of the day, he's got to be buried. And then it says, you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Now, the question here becomes, is he cursed because he was hung, or was he hung up because he was cursed? Okay. The way that the New Testament seems to deal with this verse, it's the second one. Okay, the hanging of this man is a recognition of the fact that he was anathema, that God has brought about his judgment on this person. Now, here's what's striking about this verse. When we get to the New Testament, twice in the book of Acts, once in the letter of Peter, it talks about the death of Jesus and it uses this phrase, hung on a tree. Now, I think all of us know that a cross and a tree are two different things. Why does Peter choose that language? Why does Luke use that phrase? Because this is what they're thinking of. And it's Paul who makes it explicit for us in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, this is what he says. (coughs) Speaking here in verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Here's what it says. It recognizes that this public display in the Old Testament significantly proclaimed to anyone who saw it the judgment of God. And then Paul says, we're all deserving of that judgment. We may not be hanging on the tree yet, but that's, that reality of not keeping God's law, of being a lawbreaker, is present in all of our lives. And so <coughs> he looks at the cross of Christ, he looks at the preaching of Peter and others, and he goes, it makes sense that he bore our curse. He took the full consequence of our lawbreaking. And even that was personified by the fact that he hung publicly As crucified. Let's do one more chapter, chapter 22.